You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 18. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, and I am coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. Welcome to episode 18. Wow, I can't even believe how quickly these episodes have started to flow. But the reality is, with the amazing guests that I have got lined up, it is not surprising that these numbers are starting to climb. Well, today, this episode is no exception. I have the pleasure of bringing on, finally, after much turmoil and much strife, and I'm very honest about that, we had one heck of a time getting our audio to work. I swear the the gods were against us. But I have the pleasure of bringing on Rekha McNutt into the Canadian Immigration Podcast to once and for all share some awesome content amazing insight on the world of judicial review. Now, some of you may start to snore a little bit and think, oh boy, judicial review. Well, I can tell you, those of you who are immigration lawyers or consultants, this is the podcast that you need to listen to. Reka goes to extreme lengths to make sure that we understand when it's appropriate and when it's not to file a judicial review. She has gone out of her way as well to provide and make available to all the listeners an amazing set of takeaway materials that will be found uh, within the show notes of the podcast on the uh, CanadianImmigrationPodcast.com website. So make sure that you tune in, that you listen to uh, exactly what Rick is going to teach us today. And without any further ado, let's go to that interview. All right. Well, I am here today with Rick McNutt, who is joining me on the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Welcome, Rekha. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, our first attempt at doing this uh, didn't quite work out the way I'd hoped. So this is round two for Rekha, and I'm really grateful that she was patient with me and that we were able to uh, reschedule and get you back here. Yeah, and and I think with the redo, maybe it'll be even better than the first go. We've rehearsed once. (laughs) We have, indeed. So this should be awesome. Well, I want to just share a little bit about your background for the listeners so they can get to know you a little bit. Uh, Rika practices with the law firm of Karen and Partners in Calgary, and her practice is uh, focused primarily on immigration law. Uh, Rika practices in a a real broad, um, a broad mix of areas. Uh, immigration visas and uh, permanent resident applications, uh, all kinds of permanent resident applications, family class, refugee claims, pre-removal risk assessments, uh, humanitarian compassion applications, really the full gambit. And uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to get Reka on our podcast today was to talk about some of the work that uh, she does within the federal court. So she's also appeared 
you know, in the Alberta Provincial Court and the Court of Queen's Bench of Alberta, but it's her experience uh, in the federal court that is of particular interest to us today. Um, Reke is currently the chair of the Southern Alberta branch of the Canadian Bar Association's immigration section, a position that uh, I was able to hold um, a couple years back now, I guess. Uh, how's that been going for you so far, Reke? Oh, it's really good, actually. It's uh, my first year chairing, and I'm chairing for the upcoming year as well. And it's uh, really eye-opening. It's really nice to be involved with the section. We've got a lot of newer members, and it's nice to see them um, coming to our meetings and getting involved. And uh, um, yeah, no, I'm really enjoying my time there. Awesome. Now, I went to your website, and all of the listeners, if you want to go to Reka McNutt's web, uh, her, her profile on her firm page, it is one of the, the coolest things that I've seen. There's this picture of this individual on a bullet bike, you know, making the bend, leaning over as they're going around a corner. And it looks like it was something pulled off of some kind of a professional, uh, you know, f- photo shoot uh, selling, you know, some form of a uh, motorbike. But uh, I confirmed with her that that indeed is her, a picture of her riding her bike. So <laughs> that is really cool. So how did you get involved um, in, in, yeah, with, with, with motorbikes? Well, it went back to, I was uh, a teenager getting my driver's license in Alberta, which you get at 14, you get your learners, or when I was young, you did anyways. And my dad said, when I turned 16 and I was about to get my license, my full license, he said, oh, I'm going to go get my motorcycle license. Then I said, you can do that. (laughs) And I wanted to do it as well. He said, do it. And I went with my mom of all people, got my license, did the course, and I've been riding ever since. That is awesome. Well, the listeners are definitely going to have to go to your website and check out that uh, that profile because it's great. I just loved it. It's my alter ego. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I've asked about your your um, you know the things that you do in your spare time, how did you get into your day job? How did you get into immigration? Well, I joined Karen and Partners about oh, 11 years ago, 10, 10 years ago now, and I joined in the litigation department, and our firm's got some really um, well-respected and experienced immigration lawyers, Gene Munn and Peter Wong, who've been doing this for decades, and being as junior as I was, I was doing a lot of work for many different lawyers in the firm, and that included doing immigration work for Gene and Peter, and so... I had no knowledge of immigration as a practice area until then, but as I started working with Gene and Peter, it really was an area that I found very interesting. So I didn't last very long in our litigation department, and the cosmic forces worked to bring me over to this department, and I've been here ever since. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, it's interesting when I talk to a lot of uh, immigration lawyers about their, you know, how they fell into the practice. One of the things I hear a lot is, uh, you know, what pulls people in is the ability to make a difference in people's lives. And exactly, uh, I'm not yeah. sure if you've had that experience as well. Absolutely. It's sort of, it's a very um, special area of law in that way, because you're you're making a difference in people's lives in a fairly short period of time. Um, and you're helping in a very real way. And and that really sort of, there's a broad spectrum of how you're helping people. And sometimes it's fairly straightforward and sometimes it's a puzzle. Um, but in in any context, in an immigration file, you're at the end of the day, someone's getting um, some really positive real life help, which I, I have always enjoyed. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And you know, I think you and I, we've talked in the past, I focus my practice primarily on business immigration and uh, working with individuals uh, on the transactional side. In other words, filing the applications. And then if individuals come to me seeking assistance with an application that was you know, refused or they had problems, I tend to send them your way. And so <laughs> that is one of the areas that I wanted to pull us into for our podcast today. Now, I have had an opportunity to speak with uh, some of our other lawyers, uh, Ravi Jain, for instance, I had a, a wonderful um, interview with him uh, just recently, and he went through some pretty good detail on uh, appealing a spousal that's refused uh, through the... Uh-huh. Uh, the Immigration Appeal Division. However, today I wanted to pull your expertise in with uh, the options that people might have when their visa application is refused overseas. And uh, that that process sometimes is a little bit confusing for people because they don't really know what to do or what their options are because there really is no appeal of the decision, right? Yeah, that's right. So the federal court um, gives... Um, individuals an option to challenge a decision that was refused, not just overseas at a visa office, but pretty well any decision. If you've exhausted whatever appeal process is available to you, so say it's a refugee appeal or a spousal appeal like you just mentioned, if there is no appeal available, there's always a recourse to the federal court. So it's important that people know that, you know, once they get a refusal, um, even if that's oftentimes a letter will say you ha- this is a final decision, there is no appeal, there is still a recourse to the federal court. And so it's important to seek um, legal advice to know whether there is something there that um, you can challenge and perhaps get that decision overturned. All right. So, so in terms of that, that process of challenging, um, I think we, we refer to it commonly as a judicial review. So can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and how it plays out? Sure. So a judicial review is not quite an appeal. Um, As the name suggests, a judge is reviewing the decision that was made by an immigration officer or visa officer or some other uh, decision maker. And in reviewing that decision, the court ultimately will not come to its own conclusions on an application. So if your visitor visa was refused, the court's not going to look at your application and grant you a visa. What they're going to say is, let's take a look at what you gave to this visa officer and let's take a look at their decision. And um, the court will determine whether or not that decision was reasonable or whether there were any legal errors made. And if there were legal errors made or the, the decision was unreasonable, the court will return that application to be reviewed by a different visa officer. So it gets reopened and reassessed. So ultimately, the court will review that application and give you another opportunity if they feel that the decision was wrongly made um, to have your uh, case looked at again. Gotcha. So are there some typical scenarios that you often see where, you know, filing a, a, a judicial review may be appropriate? There are um, certain circumstances where I definitely recommend that people pursue a judicial review, and it really depends on the case. So the source of the decision isn't necessarily the telling um, indication of whether to judicially review or not. So it could be a a visitor refusal, work permit refusal, study permit, or something a little bit bigger, like a permanent residence. Um, But I have to, I usually meet with a client and I decide whether or not to to review the case based on 
the decision and what the clients or their previous counsel or, or sometimes even me, what we provided to the officer. And so uh, based on my assessment of what's been provided, I'm usually able to provide the client with an opinion of whether or not they should review an, uh, a decision. Sometimes it's just really not a matter of choice anymore because the decision that's being made is so significant that it has some real long-term implications for that individual. Um, so, for example, if they have if the refusal is based on a finding of misrepresentation and the person now faces a bar to Canada for five years, that's very significant. And if there's an error there, um, then it's definitely worth pursuing to try to get that overturned. Or if it's um, a finding. I've had I got a recent one where the the person was refused based on an inadmissibility for being uh, a member of a group that was engaged in war crimes. I mean, for somebody to be told they're, they've done something that heinous and have that on their record is just really unacceptable when they're not that person. So again, in that circumstance, I definitely recommend it to the client that they they apply to the court for judicial review. Hmm. That's interesting. So when you know, um, decisions like that are rendered and, and individuals just feel they're outright wrong or, or unfair. Um, so what you're saying is whether it's a visa office or anywhere where there isn't an appeal mechanism, mechanism in place, such as the port of entry, technically, if you didn't like that decision, then you could also consider having it judicially reviewed. Yeah, you can pretty well judicially review any decision that I have reviewed quite recently a decision of a port of entry officer at the Calgary airport uh, to issue a client an exclusion order um, for a one-year period because they thought he was working here without authorization. And so we, he, he, the client said, I've never worked. I'm a businessman. I travel frequently. I have a business in Canada, but I have employees here who do the work and I do not work when I'm here. I meet with CRA for my taxes and I do my GST and I meet with my employee to make sure everything is is going okay. And so um, we applied for judicial review of that decision and it was ultimately successful by consent. Um, So port of entry decisions are for sure part of the, part of the sort of the breadth of decisions that can be reviewed. Interesting. So not all judicial review applications ultimately go to court. No, no, actually we've been finding lately and I don't know if Alberta Department of Justice lawyers are just really busy or or what the, the situation is. But a lot of the times, if you have a fairly compelling case, what I have tr- started to do actually is to contact the lawyers who are in Edmonton for Alberta and, and just having either a conversation with them or sending them a fairly detailed letter outlining what our position will be and trying to get them to consent even before any materials are filed with the court. So a lot of the time consuming part of federal court and the expense of federal court comes with the drafting of the legal arguments. Um, so I, as an effort to minimize those costs for the client, what I try to do is contact um, counsel for the DO when there's a clear error on a file to say, listen, this is what's happened. Can you please consent to having this reopened? And it's not unusual that they will consent. But those are typically in the most clearest of situations. Um, in other cases, they do require our arguments to be filed with the courts, but it's not unusual in those cases that we get consent before their arguments are due to the court. 
consents are also possible after all the materials have been filed and the court gives us what's called leave to um, to appear before them. So in the federal court, um, there's no automatic right to simply go argue your case in front of a judge. A reviewing judge has to look at all of your written material and decide whether there's enough of a case there to give you what's called leave, which essentially means permission to have an oral hearing before them. And so consent can also come after leave has been granted. Hmm, interesting. It can really come at any point in the process. Well, I can imagine that if you have a cooperative uh, DOJ on the other side, it can make life a whole lot easier for someone who who has clearly been... Um, you know the decision that was rendered was was you know was just wrong you know whether it was uh, you know um, uh, wrong from a legal perspective or procedural fairness perspective yeah, and I'll give you a straightforward example. I had a uh, client come see me and she was given 90 days to produce some documents from the Philippines and she got a refusal within 60 days saying she hadn't complied. So I wrote, I filed the notice of appeal because our timelines are so short and I wrote to the other, to the opposing lawyer and I said, listen, the letter clearly says 90 days. We haven't even reached that time yet, yet they've refused. And obviously he's like, let me contact my client. And sure enough, within a couple of days, we'd gotten something from Vegreville saying the files reopened and let's proceed. So um, that's a very clear example of when there is an error. And it, it was probably an administrative error, but um, we were able to resolve it very early. You bet. And it's interesting, too, because with this heavy emphasis on automating the whole process of immigration, mm-hmm. you know, when, you, you, when you have fewer and fewer knowledgeable people making decisions on the other side and relying upon basically uh, uh, an automated system to generate the refusal letters, you get all kinds of crazy results. I I remember for one of our clients, um, they had sent us a a fairness letter asking for us to provide medicals for non-accompanying dependent children, which is a nightmare in and of itself. Uh But they gave us 30 days to respond in one paragraph and then the very next paragraph, they said, you have 60 days to respond. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so I took the position, all right, I will take the 60 days. And um, yeah, that, that was a, a, a clear example of where if they had not accepted the, the 60 and, and uh, refused after the 30, then uh, based on your recommendations, it might be something worth uh, initiating the process anyways and, and trying to get you know, the, the DOJ to, uh, to just consent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you'll find in situations like that, that Alberta DOJ in any event are very um, willing to consent on situations in situations like that. Very cool. Okay, so let's take a step back now. And let's look at a more realistic scenario. So a person is looking forward to a lovely trip to Canada to see their family or be reunited with their boyfriend or girlfriend, and they dutifully fill in the TRV application materials and file it and uh, book their flight ready to go and they receive a lovely refusal. So in those circumstances, the person calls you and says, I heard you on the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Help. (laughs) What do you do? do? Like, what can they expect? How long does it take? (laughs) All those kinds of things. Okay, well, the first thing I would do is to ask to see a copy of that refusal letter um, and ask to see a copy of the full application package that the clients filed to ask for the TRV in the first place. And on on that 
preliminary review, it may be obvious that the application is completely lacking, or it could be that the application is fairly decent and it's not entirely clear why the application was refused. So the refusal letter that people typically get is a form letter. It's computer generated and typically the officer checks off some boxes as to why they've refused you. But it really doesn't explain the reasoning behind the refusal. And so depending on how what our timeline looks like, um, I would probably advise them to start the court process. We can always withdraw without any consequences. So I tell them, you know what, let's get going. Let's file it. And what the result of that is, is we tell the court in our starting document, which is called an application for leave, we advise the court that we do not have written reasons. And what the court will do is get a copy of those reasons directly from immigration and provide them to us. And the written reasons consist of the visa officer's GCMS notes, which is the global, tell me again, Mark, what is GCMS? Global, global. Case Management System. There you go. So GCMS, are, are those notes consist of the visa officer's reasons because they take down more detailed notes in GCMS about why they're refusing something. So once we get those reasons from the court, and because it is the court asking, immigration tends to respond quite a bit faster. And so once those reasons come, I've got an opportunity to sit down or sit down. Um, via email or Skype or something like that and review with my client what those reasons say. And it could be that the reasons might be justified because the um, we can identify some specific issues that the officer had that perhaps the person had not provided. And in situations like that, I usually recommend to the client to simply refile their application in an attempt to satisfy the officer um, with the concerns that he or she had in the first place. Um, I recommend that course of action if it's possible because the time required to refile a new application is typically much faster than the court process, which I'll tell you about in just a minute. And um, ultimately, if it's refused again, there's always the option to go to the courts afterwards. So the practical solution would be to, to try again in situations like that. You know, you and I, we've talked about this in the past. It's not like the government gives you a roadmap in how an officer thinks. Individuals will follow dutifully the checklist that's provided, the semi-useless guides, and think that they've satisfied everything that they need, and they've included all the documents that are required, and that there should be no reason for the TRV to be refused, or whatever the application is. And then lo and behold, bam, they get tossed in their face, a lovely refusal, with this, you know, like you said, this generic refusal letter with check boxes checked off and, and no real explanation. Exactly. And unless you come with a background of having done those applications like we have, it's hard to anticipate um, that you would be suspected of wanting to illegally stay in Canada or do something illegal, work illegally, whatever it might be. It's hard to anticipate that that's what you're being accused of or that's the reason why your application is being refused. And so the, the flip side to that is if there is nothing more you can do to satisfy the officer of your true, genuine intentions to come and visit Canada, the only option there is to then go ahead with the court application. And in situations like that, this is sort of what the timeline looks like. So we have already started the process and we've gotten the reasons from the court. And at that point, the clock starts to run. And we've got about, not about, we've got 30 days to file our documents and it's called our record and the record primarily consists of an affidavit from the client outlining all of the facts and everything that's happened to date and attaching all of the documents that were given to the visa officer so again because it's not a, the court is not a 
reviewing your case to make a determination on whether you get a visa or not, all they're going to take a look at is what was provided to the visa officer. And the only way to get that in front of a judge is to put it um, as an attachment to an affidavit. What else uh, we put, the other thing, the other important thing to go into our record is our legal arguments about what errors were made or why the decision was unreasonable. And so once that's filed, the lawyers for immigration have an opportunity to file their own response to that to say, no, the visa officer was completely justified for reason X, Y, Z. And once we see the opposing party's arguments, we've got an opportunity to reply within 10 days. And once all of that written material is filed with the courts, a judge is tasked with looking at reading it all, looking it over, and making a determination on leave, which is our permission to have an oral hearing. And um, if the judge decides there is sufficient merit to the case to, to have somebody listen to it orally, leave is granted. Now, to get to the leave stage from the very beginning, we're looking at at least four to six months, sometimes longer. Um, and the time that it takes a judge to make a leave decision depends, first of all, on how busy the courts are. And second, um, it's based on whether you're going to get get your leave or being refused leave. If they're going to refuse leave, you're going to hear fairly quickly from them. But if they're going to grant leave, it usually takes longer because um, applications have to be scheduled for a hearing within 90 days of the court granting leave. And so if the court doesn't have anything available in their schedules within the next 90 days, then your file is going to be sitting in that queue of applications until a date becomes available. And it's at that point, once the date has been scheduled, that they'll send you that yes decision. So in the world of federal court, it's actually an advantage if, you're, if your file's been outstanding for quite a long time because it means that it's probably going to be a positive leave decision. And um, the leave stage is really the hardest part. So I think the stats uh, are something like 20% of applications get leave. And so if you can get past the leave stage, you've got confirmation that some judge, a judge at the federal court, at least buys into your argument. So the, when you do have to go argue that case in front of another judge, in your oral hearing, at least you've got the backing of the leave judge who, who let you get there in the first place. And so from start to finish, you're looking at six to nine months, sometimes up to a year to, to do the whole thing. Ultimately, if you succeed at the federal court, the, the result is the visa office file gets reopened. And if you don't succeed, then the decision that the officer made stands. Excellent. That's, that's really helpful. And I know people that are listening to this are thinking, Oh my goodness, that is so complicated! Wow, I'm glad that uh, you know that this this is a lawyer is handling this. However, I have good news for the people listening to the podcast. Rika has been very generous and has provided just some awesome materials that break down this extremely complicated area in a way that you know even I can understand. Uh, you know, someone who doesn't practice in the area, she's provided us with a federal court flowchart which breaks down each step along the way, including processing times, and then a very detailed document here that really covers a lot of the things that you're talking about today in in much more detail. Everything from what is a judicial review all the way through to you know the time limits and you know if you need to request an extension and it's just a wonderful source of uh, of information and we will make sure that's available in the show notes uh, for this episode so thank you so much Rekha for being so generous not at all it's uh, something i give to my clients so they have a visual of what's what to expect so definitely a good uh, good reference tool absolutely now 
I asked you to provide me with a few kind of top takeaways, I guess, from from our discussion, at least high-level areas that, that we really want to emphasize for our listeners. And the first one that you mentioned uh, was to remind everyone that a judicial review is not an appeal. So unlike our previous uh, episode, uh, previous podcast with Ravi Jain, where he explained about the Immigration Appeal Division, which is a, a hearing de novo, this is not. So, you know, because the court cannot look at any new evidence, if you're going in and you're a client and you say, look, I want my day in court, you know, I don't believe that officer was was right in refusing, and then you, you retain Reka and she says, it's not looking so good, you are <laughs> far better off to just kind of lick your wounds and go back and take a serious look at what the GCM notes say uh, and then answer each of those concerns and provide the evidence to make that second application uh, a lot stronger than trying to uh, file a judicial review when the evidence really isn't in your favor. Yeah, and it's, uh, I think a lot, Every time I, I do a consult for a client on these issues, if the recommendation is to refile and there's a good reason for it, I've never had anyone really keen on going to the courts. People are generally reluctant to seek court applications because of how long things take and how expensive it is. So if there is a, a faster, cheaper solution, most people are keen on trying that. And knowing that the court option is always available at the end of the road if it is refused again gives people some comfort in knowing there is recourse if immigration is just being unreasonable, um, that they could seek out a court application, but they would do so with the best possible foot forward. That makes a lot of sense. You know, that's really, really good advice. All right. The second takeaway that I want our listeners to to remember is that it's really important to consult a lawyer as soon as you get that refusal. And, uh, you know, because of the short timelines and the limitation periods that you have to, to, to file, um, you know, you, you don't have a lot of time. Yeah, we can we can seek time extensions, but there is no guarantee that the court will give those extensions. We seek them at the time that we f begin the whole process if we're late to begin with. And the decision on whether to grant the time extension is made at the same time as the leave decision. So typically, if your case is really good, it has very good merit, the time extension will be granted. And vice versa, if there is no merit, they're going to deny leave. They'll also deny your time extension request at the same time. They're not going to allow one and deny the other typically. Right. That makes a lot of sense. All right. The third and final one is you really wanted to emphasize how important it was to hire a lawyer who is familiar with the type of application that was refused. And obviously that type of a person is going to be the best situated to determine whether or not it even makes sense to file the judicial review, whether or not the error would be, uh, you know, one that would, that would really um, lead to, to success on that review process. Exactly. And I think um, immigration law is unique in that it's very, very broad. And so you've got refugee claims, you've got immigration appeals, which consists of spousal appeals or maybe residency appeals, and you've got permanent residence, economic, family class, you've got temporary applications. It's so broad that you're not going to have a person, uh, you're not necessarily going to find a lawyer who's practiced in all of those areas. And when you're judicially reviewing, it's important to know the underlying application to know from the outset whether the decision is reasonable or not. And if you've not done the underlying work, it's really hard to know if there's been an error made. And so if, you've, if you're a lawyer who's never done a refugee claim, it's going to be hard to say this, the refugee, um, 
the member of the Refugee Protection Division made an error or the Refugee Appeal Division made an error because you're not familiar with what the legal standards are in those uh, tribunals um, to, to advise your client. So that is really important, I think. And let's face it, when people are trying to determine, you know, which lawyer to hire, it's not easy. You know, without coming on this wonderful podcast and being able to listen to you share your insight and knowledge, it's really difficult to tell who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't have a clue. And the reality is, you know, in this whole world of, of experts, which we as lawyers are, are, are not allowed to hold ourselves out as such, um, you know, the world sees a person who knows just a little bit more than you uh, as, as the expert. When you're juggling with your life and when you're trying to uh, seek resolution to something that is really life-altering, it's a really tough decision to make. And so, you know, without, you know, without trying to toot your horn too much here, Rekha, if someone uh, is in a situation where they have had a, their visa refused and they've listened to this podcast and say, hey, at least I know, you know, there's someone that I can trust. How do they contact you? I'm happy to take a phone call. My direct phone number is 403-770-4014. Or um, you've probably got my web link, my website, firm website address linked uh, to the podcast and my profiles on our firm website and my emails there as well. And that's a great way to get a hold of me. And I'm happy to talk to anybody who's got um, refusals that they need to deal with. Perfect. That's awesome. And also the listeners absolutely have to go to your website to check out your profile and see you <laughs> riding that bullet bike around that corner. That is so cool. I, I, I'll, I'll emphasize again, I totally thought that that had to have been some kind of stock photo. And uh, when you told me it was you, I thought that is fantastic. I have well, to have a more exciting life outside of immigration law. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Not that the, the government, you know, uh, both our pre predecessor government and the current one hasn't tried to make our lives interesting as immigration lawyers, but without Fair a doubt, enough. there needs to be uh, there needs to be some other thing to uh, to help recharge before you get back into the trenches. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rekha. I really appreciate the time that you've taken, the great insight that you've provided, and you know, and every bit as much these materials that are available uh, for our listeners. Thanks so much, and I hope that we can have you back again in the future. You're very welcome, Mark, and thank you for having me. You bet. Take care. Well, there you have it. It was great to have Rekha on with me, and I'm so very, very grateful for her taking the time to join me with all of the technical glitches, and once again, we had even more when we were trying to produce this version, and it's probably on my end, but one thing's for certain when you're relying on technology, the moment you need it, it will fail, and it did. So we had to take a couple more tries at getting the recording completed, but notwithstanding that, I hope you're able to look past some of the you know, minor shortcomings with the audio quality when we're trying to get Reka in at the beginning of the podcast. And then you'll probably notice a slight sound change in the second part, which was the part that we had to re-record. But she stuck with me, and that's just a testament to her. You know, she's super busy with her client load and the things that she's working on in her own office. But notwithstanding that, she took the time to join me, even when we were struggling with trying to get the audio straightened around and everything sorted out to make the podcast exactly what it should be. So bear with me as I work through this. I know that the technical issues, you probably don't care, you know, what it takes to put this podcast together, but 
I'm going to tell you anyways. And some days I pull my hair out because I know how important the audio quality is. So hopefully as we, you bear with me and we continue on uh, with podcast after podcast, I'll eventually figure it out and get things set up so every call sounds fantastic. But uh, Reka really brought it to the podcast. She really knocked it out of the park. And uh, because of that, I'm so very, very grateful that she joined me. So stay tuned. We've got another series of awesome guests coming. And uh, I'm really, really looking forward because in all honesty, I learn everybody as much as you do with these podcasts. So thanks for joining me. Don't forget to share this with your friends, uh, colleagues, anyone that you think might be able to benefit from this. The reality is the more people that benefit from it, uh, the more we're going to be able to get awesome speakers on. And like I said, I'm still hoping that one day our minister will come join me and talk about immigration. But to get to that stage, we're probably going to need to get every immigration lawyer in the country, as well as other related and interested stakeholders chiming in too and subscribing to the podcast. So share it, go to iTunes and subscribe, and please leave a review. So take the time to do that because the more reviews we get, the more attention it's going to get within iTunes and ultimately the more subscribers. And also go to the CanadianImmigrationPodcast.com website and subscribe to the mailing list and we'll make sure that you are notified when new episodes are released. So thanks once again, and I seem to be saying a lot of thanks, but I really do mean it. I can see how this podcast is going to be completely awesome. Thanks for joining me. And until next time, good luck. I wish you all the best as you and I struggle through the complex maze of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com.
from the Canadian Immigration Podcast.